0: Let's read uh, God's word together. Chapter 13, Mark chapter 13. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple... Peter and James and John and Andrew, asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he. And they will lead many astray. And when you hear wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place. But the end is not yet, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning, beginnings of the birth pains. But be put on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them. And the gospel must be, must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death and the father, and the father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judah flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out, And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for the women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be much tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For, the fa- for false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if it is possible, the elect. But be on guard. I've told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all, thi- all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say <clears throat> and what I say to you, you I say to all, stay awake. These are the words of the Lord. Please pray with me. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for being allowed come and worship you. We thank you for Pastor Cody and the message that he's going to preach today, Father. Father, we, we ask that you be with him and that you would guide his words and guide his, guide his path, Father. Father, we, we thank you for this great nation that we're allowed to come and, and worship you freely, and we pray for those nations who, who are persecuted, Father, Father, we thank you for the songs that we were allowed to sing this morning, Father, and how much those words mean to us. Father, we thank you for the church body. We thank you that that we're brothers and sisters in Christ and that we come here to worship you, Father. We thank you so much for the the fathers that, that are here today. And we ask a special blessing on them. We ask all these things in your Son Jesus' name, Amen. Well,
1: you may be seated. It seems like it's been uh, quite a bit of time since we've been in the Book of Mark, but uh, just a few weeks here. I had Warren read the entire ch- uh, chapter for us. If you've never read that chapter before, you can understand why it is often. Uh, termed as one of the more difficult passages in scripture a lot of language there that we've just not yet seen in the book of mark i'm going to be preaching this morning on basically what is part one i'll preach the first portion of this passage from uh, verse one through 23 and then next week i'll take a look at 24 through through the remaining part of mark chapter 13 Needless to say, this passage over the last six months has been looming on my calendar. Sort of staring me in the face, taunting me. What are you going to say? What are you going to do with these passages? And you may have heard this passage preached before. You probably have not heard it preached before. But I trust that um, after we have studied this morning, it will not be quite as scary as it might first seem on first glance. In fact, it might be downright encouraging. I trust that it will be. My primary argument from the text this morning is is this. God is as faithful to judge sin as he is to mercifully sustain his own until the end. Let me repeat that. God is as faithful to judge sin as he is to mercifully sustain his own until the end. Now, how did I come about that Phrase for this passage. Look with me at the text. Beginning in verse 1. Let's just begin to get a bit of context as a reminder since we have not been in the book of Mark in some weeks, or you may have not been with us in our study the past year as we've gotten to Mark chapter 13. Look with me at chapter 12, verse 41 through 44, and we could simply state in summation by the example of the widow's might that Christ is calling us to trust Him and rely on Him, to trust Him and rely on Him. If you back up a little bit more to verse 28 through 37 of Mark 12, you see clearly that we are to be fully submitted and under the authority of the eternal kingdom of God through the person and work of Jesus Christ. We're told that we're to be all in, as we saw that we're supposed to love Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. If you back up even more to uh, chapter 11, verse 12 through 21, we'll remember through the parable of the fig tree here, or the lesson of the fig tree, not the parable, that Christ in chapter 11, specifically verse 12 and following, is promising a coming judgment upon the temple. And if we zoom out even farther in the book of Mark, we see throughout the book of Mark, specifically in verse chapter 9, verse 7, That we are called to listen to the Son of God. Chapter 9 verse 7 says, Here is my beloved Son, listen to Him. And so this passage this morning is just another one of those passages that we're called to listen to the voice of the Son of God. To heed His instruction. To heed His commands. To heed what He's telling us. And will we obey? Mark chapter 13, verse 1, let's set the setting here. We see that immediately in in verse 1 of chapter 13, that he comes out of the temple. One of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be one left here. Will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Great buildings... For the Herodian temple, which is what Christ has just exited, is an understatement of huge imp- proportions. This building was, in many ways, the most magnificent, world-renowned building of its day. Listen to just some of the si- the sizes of some of the stones that you can still see today. 39 feet plus by 7 feet plus by 43 feet. Inches wide. That's not the biggest stone. The largest stone. 41 feet long. 15 feet wide. 11.5 feet high. Weighing between 570 and 630 tons. Cut out of rock by man. And moved to assemble what is still remaining the west wall in Jerusalem. Every stone, you can go online and look at it, every stone is set back a half inch from the previous one. And the, the measurements are exact. Every stone has a chiseled recess as if it was a raised panel. There was nothing like this building in all of the known world at that time. There were columns, Corinthian columns, so large that it would take three grown men holding hands just to wrap their arms around it and they would sky into the air. This was no simple building. And so it was no simply a simple great building. And so when Christ comes out of the temple and says, it's all going away. If I could use the phrase, it was earth shattering. It was earth It was beyond what anybody could possibly comprehend. It was the foretelling of Jesus. And of course, what would you logically conclude? If Christ has made such a daunting statement, such an earth-shattering statement, immediately you would think, well, Peter, James, at least Peter, James, and John, from our understanding in the previous 12 chapters, would probably pull him aside and say, you don't know what you're talking about. Or at least I'm going to ask him a question. And that's exactly what happens here. They pull him aside and they ask him, What did you just say? Did you just, what did you just say? What, what can we look for? They exit the temple and you see that they go up the Mount of Olives, Mount of Olives, that is east of Jerusalem. And it's very important as we study this passage to keep in mind the setting. That in essence, this is a conversation Christ is having here with Peter, James, John, and Andrew. And the remaining part of this book, Mark, excuse me, this chapter, Mark 13, is essentially going to answer the two questions that these four men ask Jesus privately. Question number one, when will these things be? When will these things be? Question number two, what will be the sign? And everything that follows in Mark 13 must be understood as Christ answering one of or both of these two questions. And we're going to note that the majority of the focus is less on when these things will be and much more on what the sign will be. You could also point it in this way. Almost everything that follows here must be viewed first, primarily, from an historical perspective, from an historical lens. So before we jump quickly to an eschatological, before we jump quickly to an end times lens, we certainly can say with certainty that the instruction of Christ to his disciples is helpful and even vital information in preparing them for coming days of hardship. We will see that Christ is going to call them to an endurance, historically. For faithfulness in the face of historic trials. And encouragement even to know that these trials, as immense as they may be, have a conclusive end. And so you can see right at the beginning here, that as difficult as this passage may be for us to understand. The heart of the passage, being an encouragement in the midst of immense trial, is as applicable to the church today As it was to the four disciples hearing it for the first time. Certainly we know that this passage has end times also in view. But we have to understand that apocalyptic literature. Which is some of what we'll be reading this morning. Is heavy on symbols and fantastic imagery. We've seen a little bit of that just as we read it this morning. That these earthquakes and wars and powers of heaven and stars falling from the sky. And so we have both historical prophecy, what's coming... And we also have this fantastic imagery. Apocalyptic literature is profoundly Jewish in origin. It always recognizes that God will mightily intervene upon the part of his chosen people against all and any forces of evil in order that his people might prosper for eternity. And so when we read apocalyptic literature, our first inclination is to make the assumption that what we're talking about here is coming in the end times. See if this analogy may, helpful, may be helpful to you. If you've ever gone to Colorado, a place with mountains. If you've never gone there, just imagine going to Enchanted Rock. And as you come over the top of hills and you see hills in front of you, you think, well, that's not too far away. And look, the, the mountains of Colorado, there's a beautiful mountain range and, and that next mountain seems to be tucked right behind it, right there. And then you drive closer and closer, and when you arrive at the first mountain, you realize that this distance between mountain one and mountain two is actually even as much as hundreds of miles. What you thought was close actually had quite a bit of space between the two. And that's exactly what oftentimes takes place when we read this type of literature. What we see here is there's not a gap between what Christ is telling is going to happen in a couple years, which we'll see in a minute, and what's going to happen at the end times. He doesn't see that gap. There is a gap. We know it's it's at least 2,000 plus years at this point in time. But we have to understand that there is a gap, and we have to be able to delineate between the first and the second. In a way, Christ is viewing these two events, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, and his second coming as just that, very connected. But he's viewing it as the Son of God. And his space and time understanding and realization is much different than ours. What we can clearly understand this morning is that all of history, whether it's 40 years into the future, as most of this passage is concerning, or until the end of the time which may be any time or 2,000 more years, all of it is under the control of Jesus. All of it is under the control of God. So it's not clear the time frames we have in this passage, though we would have some definite time markers for the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem. Well, we also know that Christ gives us no time frame for his second coming that anyone can clearly identify. In fact... As we will see next week in verse 24 and following, even Christ does not know the day or the hour. The angels do not even know the day or the hour. Only God the Father knows the day or the hour when Christ will come again. Let's not miss this important point at the beginning of our study this morning. The history is His story. That we as Christians today in 2017 are very much in the middle of the New Testament age. The unfolding, the linear progression of God's unfolding plan of redemption. And one day, this age that we know will come to an end. The only one who knows that, as we've said, is God. His control over all things is without a doubt. The reign of Christ over our time frame now is never without a doubt in Scripture, and need we no more know any more for what may happen in the future. We know Christ is reigning, and that is what we need to know. Let's look at the next section here in verse five through thirteen, and I've entitled this section as His history is his story, as we've just declared. I want you to notice the imperatives in this section and even into the next. Look at verse 5. The first word, see, or your Bible's translation might say, watch. Look at verse 9. Be on your guard. Look at verse 13. Endure to the end. Verse 14. Flee to the mountains. Verse 23 bookends it. Be on your guard. Christ is calling his disciples here. Exhorting them to be true, to be faithful, no matter the coming and pending trials. And trials they were very much to be. Verse 7, we see this. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. Verse 7 speaks of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire, in the day of Christ speaking this... Was in, relatively, was in relative peace. They had enjoyed an era of peace for quite some time, and yet almost 40 years later, they would go through four different emperors in one year. Famines, as mentioned in verse 11. We see that, excuse me, in verse, uh, verse 8. We see famines. That's mentioned in Acts chapter 11. And you can read the historian Josephus and, and find all of these famines and, and wars that actually take place. And do we know that these things are continuing? Of course. But we also have to state them historically as well. You notice it says in verse 8, these are just the beginning. Certainly we see that these wars and rumors of wars and either even earthquakes haven't stopped. And yet Christ here is speaking historically of 67 to 70 AD. The persecution of Nero, the destruction of the temple, and the Jerusalem by Titus. That is his primary warning for his four disciples that he is speaking with. And we also realize that these things are continuing to happen. The point isn't when they will happen... As much as if they will happen. And to realize that Christ has told us things that will not be easy. And actually to prepare us for the not easy times. As he's doing for his disciples here. You'll notice that the persecution as foretold in 5 through verse 13. Happened very clearly even to the disciples. Verse 9. They will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues. And the you meaning these disciples. And they were very much beaten and put into prison. You might just read the book of Acts and see very clearly all that takes place there. And if you read the book of Acts, you will see clearly that what Christ foretells will happen. All these men will hate you. It does happen. And they are saved, though not eternally. They were saved eternally, though they were not saved physically. You notice then the call even in verse 8, 9, and 10. 10 specifically, this thought about nations and that the gospel must be preached to all nations. Certainly that has been interpreted differently. And certainly we're called to proclaim the gospel to every tribe, tongue, and nation. But I think in the context of history... As being spoken of here, Christ is actually not speaking of the entire world over, but more of the Roman Empire of that time. Nero does come into power in 67 AD. And if you ever studied Nero, he instituted horrors that even now today, 2,000 years later almost, is still the pinnacle of evil that you just cannot fathom. He dreamed up stuff that is beyond wicked. In fact, if you look at the history books and you compare it with Mark 13, Mark 13 is one of the greatest proofs of the authenticity of the Bible because of how, how clear the fulfillment is of the persecution that took place on the early church between 67 and 70 AD. You can also imagine, though, the encouragement to the Apostle Paul as he might have been reading this passage of 5-13. through 13, As he's been sitting in prison. He describes for us his great persecution that he endured in Second Corinthians 11, 23 and 33. And just the knowledge that he would have had that's saying, Christ has foretold these things were coming. In Paul's day, these things were there. And Paul sitting under them. But Paul knowing Christ has foretold them and he will be faithful. I think today... Much of the downfall of the Western church, speaking specifically of the church in America, may be well related to the easy nature of Christianity that is within the West. Christianity is a life and death religion. And so you can understand how that is not very easily seen in America. You could see how our brothers and sisters from China would come over and not even recognize what we're doing that we call Christianity. You could see how our brothers or sisters from Russia could come over and not even recognize the, practice, the practices of Western Christianity. If you think about it, almost everything we do... In Western Christianity, is conflict adverse? We want to do everything that shies away. Conflict. So if we get into the fray of things, we don't want to do that. That might cause some loss. So if we speak up about Christ, that might cause loss of relationships, or friends, or reputation, or family, or jobs, or businesses, or homes. And so we then wonder why the political and the educational and even the church system is, pardon my language, going to hell in a handbasket in the United States of America. It's because the gospel is very much a gospel of us and not proclaimed to them. We don't get what it means in America to suffer for Jesus. And that's a blessing in many ways. You don't have to walk out your front door and fear someone's going to shoot you tomorrow morning. But nor can we say that we clearly understand what it means to suffer for Jesus. Somebody might not like our Facebook post. That doesn't compare to somebody killing us when we proclaim Christ and are baptized and within 24 hours have an honor killing and we're dead. Those things aren't even on the same page. The remedy? What's the remedy? It's not a lot to ask. It's not a lot to ask. It's simply what we've been called to do, what Christ has commanded. It's the message of Christianity, no matter where you are in the world, time, or space. It's the marching orders for us this morning, if you will. It's simply to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. To preach it first to your own soul. To remind you of what Christ has done for you. To preach it to your wife, to preach it to your kids, to tell your neighbor, to tell the waiter, to tell the lawn guy, the plumber, the unbelieving family member, whatever it would be. And it's hard. I get it. It's really hard to do this. It's really uncomfortable. It's socially incorrect. but it's what we are called to do. And it's what we are called to know and proclaim. And it's what transforms us. And it's what's the bedrock of our hope for the future is the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we work out and we feel the resistance of weights against us or running, and we feel our body growing weak, we also get the joy of knowing our body's getting stronger. And so as we exercise our faith and we push against and proclaim the gospel in winsome ways, in kind ways, but in clear ways, we find that joy and wonder and delight of knowing that our faith is being strengthened. It's getting stronger because His faithfulness has been given to us. Brothers and sisters, we need vitally to repent of a fear of man. Oh, just pre- just studying this passage this morning, it's been re- always well, been pressing on me the fear of man in my own life. And as I went to the Chinese food restaurant this week and sat with a, in, the intern of our church and the waiter, I knew the waiter because her daughter played on my basketball team. I did not give her the gospel. Could I not have simply asked, what about Christ? Fathers, we need to teach our children that Christianity was bought with a price And following Christ is not going to be easy. And yet that God is going to be faithful. If we teach our children that Christianity is easy, we'll continue the line of thinking that the Western church has prevailed on. The blood of martyrs has always watered the seed of the church. And our children must know that. Even liberal theologians this is from a liberal theological background. This is what they say, Gonzales and Gonzales on Revelation 3. We are also part of a worldwide church that in many areas is living under circumstances similar to those of the first century. Injustice and idolatry are still rampant both in our society and throughout the world. And for these reasons, it is good that the book of Revelation with its dire warnings, and we can include the book of Mark and Mark 13 this morning, with its dire warnings against those who would rather be comfortable or successful than faithful, is part of our New Testament. The call of Christ is not success, it's not comfort, it's faithfulness. God is merciful to sustain his own to the end. You see that at the end of 13, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. We see that physically, and we see God doing that for us spiritually. Let's move to the next section 14-23, through 23, his character is revealed in his story. His character is revealed in his story. Verse 14-18 through 18 is a foretelling and an instruction on what to do when Jerusalem and the temple were attacked as judgment of God upon the idolatry of Israel there. You see, the abomination of desolation, that's a phrase that is oftentimes misunderstood. And what it simply means is, the abomination... That which is repulsive, that which is disgusting to God that results in destruction, that results in desolation. Christ is speaking of Titus that comes in and flattens the temple in 70 AD. 70 AD is one of the greatest proofs, as I said, of the credibility of the authenticity of the Bible. The historian Josephus says that as many as 1.1 to 1.6 million Jews were slaughtered in 70 AD. They went into Jerusalem, understandably, because that's what you do. When you're getting attacked, you go to your fortress. And so they went to their fortress, which is Jerusalem, and it was flattened. In fact, only those who followed the instruction of Christ and fled to the hills were saved which were the Christians who followed the testimony of Christ here. We must understand that, obviously, these things have a near and a far fulfillment. For instance, in the book of Daniel, chapter 9, and in chapter 11, you'll see Daniel also discussing an abomination of desolation. Historically, I believe he was thinking of Antiochus Epiphanes and what he did. And then you also have Christ here, prophecy concerning Titus, And possibly even more. Maybe others will rise up and seek to lead people astray. To defile the worship of God. And we certainly know that has been the case. There are always false teachers seeking to to be raised up and lead astray the people of God. What we can know clearly is that sinful man is always seeking to corrupt proper worship to God and exalt man in God's rightful place. Romans 1 tells us this clearly. That which is the creature is always seeking to rebel in sin against the creator. Man is always seeking to worship himself. Man is always seeking to exalt himself over God in our sin. The history of the world, as recorded in the Bible, and if we just take time this morning and would browse 2,000 years of of church history it's clear that man isn't getting any better anytime soon. We've had our high points, and we've also had our tremendous low points. Oftentimes what we see is that as history bears the sin of man going down, the blood of the martyrs is the watering of the seed of the church. As the sin of mankind grows more grotesque, as man flaunts his creatureliness, Rebelliously in the face of the almighty creator, there are others through the gospel of Jesus Christ that are seeking to go the other direction by his almighty grace. And so, as to whether or not there will be another antichrist, and throughout church history, many people have thought that the person in their day was the antichrist. Luther and Calvin were convinced that the antichrist was the pope. Stalin and Mussolini and Hitler are very popular candidates for 20th century antichrist. Nero was even thought of as an antichrist, as being probably the pinnacle of all evil. And there are always others that will be anti against Christ that will come. And whoever comes, even if this person is of great power, he is not to be feared. Matthew 10 instructs us, Do not fear the man who can kill the body, but fear God only. We do not fear, brothers and sisters, about what may come in the future because of the truth we understand in Revelation 21. Verse 5, And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this, for these words are trustworthy and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water as a gift from the spring of the water of life. Those who conquer will inherit these things. And I will be their God and they will be my children. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the polluted, the murderers, the fornicators, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all the liars. And we could put in and all the Antichrists. Their place will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Revelation 21, 5-8. through eight. We need have no fear because of Christ. We have a king who is sitting on his throne and he will not relinquish authority. You notice the sovereign hand of God bringing even mercy and grace in this passage in verse 20 if the lord had not cut these cut short those days nero may have wanted titus may have wanted to completely wipe the slate clean of jews and yet and even christians and yet christ god has mercy here and brings an end to the persecution of the early christians by the romans second timothy 3 and first and second and third john Speak of many of those who will be in opposition. And as you can see there, verse 21 and 22, speaking of false teachers and false Christs. Brothers and sisters, this passage is not a passage to be fearful of. It's a passage of tremendous hope. It's a passage that we can even rejoice in and be humbled at, the might and power of our God, to stand in awe at his transcendent power, to worship him aright. Because what is clear in Scripture is that that the next great redemptive event is the return of Jesus Christ, is the return of the King, The bringing to a close of this world and the formation of the new heavens and the new earth. We've always been living in the last days, in a sense, from the time of Jesus' resurrection. And we're not given a calendar of events, like how Lindsay's The Late Great Planet Earth seeks to do. But we are given a very clear and precious promise of the end that is to come. That there will be an end. So how are we then to live today as Christians? How are we live to live tomorrow as believers? Should we live in panic? Should we be in fear? Should we be glued to social media and the news stations to find out what is happening? I don't think so. I think we're to live in the light of eternity. We're to know the future is going to end. Brothers and sisters, we don't know when that future is going to end. But we do see clearly in this passage that God sustains, his character sustains those that are his by his mercy as much as his character also is faithful to judge those that are not his. As we live in the light of eternity, even in the midst of pains and difficulties in this earth, we do live as Christians not without hope. We live with eternal hope. And that does have massive even cataclysmic, world-defining implications for Christians today. Because when everything else is falling apart around us, the Christian's the one left smiling. The Christian says, Guys, I got an inside track. I know what's going to happen. He's ruling and reigning. He has all control. And I'm his. By his grace and mercy. And so when we get cancer... When we lose a loved one, when there's a miscarriage, when there's struggles in the marriage, when we have a wayward child, when we want to know God's will for our lives, Christians don't freak out. They say, God is faithful. He has a story, His story. He is telling it. I'm a part of it. When He says it's my turn to act, He'll make it clear. We live in the understanding of a sovereign god it's gas in our tanks for our souls that gets us through today's difficulties and tomorrow's unknowns we know clearly that he's no longer christ is no longer on the cross we know clearly that there's just used grave clothes that he has risen that he has ascended and that he is ruling and reigning at the right hand of the father The Bible's overwhelming emphasis is that we should live as if Christ will return during our lifetime, irregardless of whether God chooses to send him back or not during our lifetime. Just think about it. If Christ if we knew exactly when Christ was going to return and it was two thousand one hundred and twenty, can you imagine the chaos? We're not coming back now, I can do whatever I want. But we don't know when he's coming back. And therefore, that is an act of grace and mercy to help us keep, keep focused as believers on the right things. For each believer, for every believer, we live each day knowing that the best is yet to come. I wonder this morning, if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, if you've never submitted your life to him, do you know the God who is in control of all of history? And your life might be just fine. You might have the job you want. The money you want. The marriage you want. Everything might just be peachy. But do you understand. Whether your life is peachy. Or completely miserable this morning in your sin. As an unbeliever. That you will have to face the God of history. And when you face him. At your death or Christ's return, whatever is first, you will have to give an answer for the sin in your life. That is what is clear. God's story, his story, irregardless of you whether you want it to or not, will happen. And Christians should rejoice and live as commanded in humble, joyful, faith filled, hopeful repentance. Springing from a Christ likeness granted and grown in loving God and unbelievers, you should tremble and repent of your sin and turn in faith to trust in Christ for eternal salvation from your sin against the Almighty God. Verse 23 closes our section this morning. But be on guard. I have told you. We noticed this morning by closing that the difference between those who were saved in the hills. When Titus comes in in 70 AD, and those who were destroyed was whether or not they listened and obeyed the instruction of Jesus. This should bring to mind Matthew 7, where we, those who built their house on a house of sand, it just crumbled. Or, or James 1, through 25, where we should not just be hearers of the word, but doers only. And what is clear in those passages is the difference is, do you hear God? Do you hear the word of Christ in the Bible? And will you obey? His word is to obey, obeyed and heeded. His word is good for us. Will we hear the words of Jesus, not just in Mark 13, but throughout the Bible and do anything about it? The aim of Christ in this chapter is to encourage his disciples, and thus as us as well, in faithfulness to the end. Whenever that end may be. To know that loyalty and faithfulness to Christ is worth it. And consider this morning the fact that we have so much more than the disciples did on that day on the Mount of Olives. We have almost 2,000 years of church history on our side, displaying the faithfulness and worthiness of Christ. We understand so much more deeply the glory of the Son of God becoming the Son of Man, leaving His home of glory to take the humble manger to save sinful, sinful rebels to Himself for eternity. So brothers and sisters, let's be faithful to Him this week. Let's be faithful to his word. Let's fight the good fight this week. Let's run the course well. Because his word and his work is faithful to us this week. His grace is and will be sufficient for today and tomorrow. He has called us out of darkness into his glorious light to display vividly and creatively and passionately and even loudly glory of our savior and god our father to all the earth that is around us we look and long for that day we pray that he comes soon but whether it's today or tomorrow or in the future we've been given our marching orders and may we be obedient to them let's pray father what a joy to know that your character is displays for us clearly your faithfulness to judge and to have mercy and sustain. Father, we know that the end is coming and it may be very near. We pray that it is. And we know Christ is coming again. And when he comes again as judge, he comes as the one who has died on the cross and through his death, burial, and resurrection has been given the privilege of judge. So our call this morning, Father, is to believe in Christ who has died, was buried, and raised again on our behalf. You've told us that your authority commands that we go to all the earth and proclaim the good news. To teach others your ways, to baptize. So may we be faithful this week to proclaim the good news. We look forward and long for the day when Christ will return. We don't do so with fear, we do so with joy, knowing that your faithfulness to us endures to the end. And on and on and on. We thank you for your word, the good news that is there for us this morning. In the precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen.